0: Well, good morning, church. <clears throat> if you've got your Bibles, and I hope that you do, please turn to Romans chapter 12. This morning we're going to be completing, Lord willing, chapter 12 and starting into chapter 13 next week. We will more than likely make a little bit more quick progress through chapter 13 than we did through chapter 12. But no promises. Uh, by the way, um, husbands... Please don't read anything into the title of the sermon just because your wife isn't here this morning, okay? That's not on purpose. Don't try to apply this sermon when she comes home. Honey, I learned about, all about how to be transformed and how I love my enemies, and so I'm going to try it out on you. As we go through passages of Scripture, uh, the Lord has, is sovereign over what we cover and when we cover it. Um, So we've covered this passage, verses 9 through 21. We've spent a few weeks here, and we've talked about how in these 13 verses, um, Paul has 30 exhortations, just like rapid-fire commands, rapid-fire exhortations, and he's describing the life of the one who's been transformed by the gospel, the one who's come to faith in Jesus Christ has been rescued by God's sovereign grace and has been changed from the inside out. These are the sorts of things that would describe their life. There's 30 exhortations in this passage. It's titled in uh, the subtitle in in the ESV is Marks of a True Christian. And so there's this, this description of the Christian life, this description of, of what this transformation looks like. We've covered 21 of the exhortations. And in these closing five verses, verses 17 through 21, we're going to look at the remaining nine. And they all kind of are wrapped up into one main exhortation. So before we dive into this, real quickly. To help us understand the structure of verses 9 through 21, we've been using this analogy of, of an ever-widening circle. The circle begins in verse 9 with just us and some very personal exhortations to us. Let your love be genuine. Let your love be, be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. So, Some very personal exhortations. And then in verse 10, verses 10 through 13, Paul widened that circle to include one another in the body of Christ. How are we to be transformed in how we love one another in the church? And then as we saw last week in verses 14 through 16, Paul widens that circle a second time to include those who are outside the church. So we're to be transformed in how we love not just those in the church, but also those outside the church. But in this passage this morning, the closing verses of chapter 12, Paul widens that circle a final time to include not just those who are arbitrarily outside the church or outside the faith even, but those who intentionally seek to do us harm, those who seek to do evil to us, those whom we might call our enemies. Now, you recall last week in verse 14, Paul talked about blessing those who persecute you, bless and don't curse them. And some might say, well, those who persecute, certainly they would be included among those whom we might call our enemies or those who might seek to do evil to us. And so how are we to understand this? Why, why are we just now talking about those who are our enemies if Paul talked about that in verse 14? A couple of things to say about that before we dive in. One is that we really can't make sharp distinctions between the groups of, of people that Paul is telling us how we're related. Who, who we're to relate to and how we're to relate to them. This, this analogy of an ever-widening circle is a, is a helpful yet imperfect way to understand the structure of this passage. And so we're not to be too strict in our distinction between these groups of people. He kind of goes back and forth as we saw last week. But secondly, uh, we noted last week that the strict definition of the word persecute um, doesn't necessarily mean violence. It means to pursue in a harassing or oppressive or even annoying manner. But here in verses 17 through 21, as we'll see, Paul is kind of ratcheting up the idea of persecution. The harassing, oppressive, or annoying a tre- treatment. He's, he's ratcheting that up to something that is unadulterated evil. Uses that word four times in these five verses, evil. It's something here for which we are tempted to seek vengeance for. And so we ask Paul, how are we to treat those who would seek to do evil to us, who would seek to do violence to us? How are we to relate to them? Here's the words of Scripture in response to that question. Verses 17 through 21 of Romans 12. The Word of God. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves. but overcome evil with good. Would you pray with me? And we thank you so much for the privilege it's been this morning to worship you, to sing these songs, extolling you for who you are and what you've done for us. We pray that you'd keep us in the spirit of worship as we turn now to your word. First of all, Father, we want to thank you so much for this book that we hold in our hands We thank you so much for revealing yourself to us on the pages of Scripture. We're thankful, Father, for your spirit breathing out these words and overseeing perfectly and without error the human authors who put your words on paper and how you perfectly and sovereignly overlooked the preservation of this word such that we can know and have confidence that what we hold in our hands to be the very breath of God and because it is your breath, we want to treat it with honor and respect and we we want to learn from it and we want to be changed by it. So Father, we pray for your Holy Spirit to move in ours this morning, to move in this very room, to move in our lives, to begin to affect these kinds of transformations, to so change our hearts in these ways that we might give you the honor and glory that you deserve from our life. Would you do that, Spirit? We lay ourselves before you and ask humbly that you would convict us of the ways in which we do not mirror what we see in these exhortations and give us a new heart, a transformed heart, God, that will honor you and will glorify you even in the face of those who seek to do us evil. Do that work in us. We pray, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, before we dive into this, I want us to just think for a moment, because I spent some time thinking this week about the guy who's writing this, telling us to not repay evil for evil, to bless those who persecute you, bless and don't curse them this is the apostle paul who before jesus showed up to him in that blinding light on the road to damascus he was known as saul and he was on the way to damascus to do that which he had been doing for many months and that is to travel from town to town and imprison followers of the way Followers of Jesus, he was a persecutor of the church. He imprisoned those who affirmed the resurrection of Jesus. He put them in jail. At the end of Acts chapter 7, we see him standing by approvingly as his fellow Pharisees and scribes picked up rocks and threw them at Stephen and killed him on the streets of Jerusalem because of his belief and faith in Jesus Christ. This is the one who writes us. He says of himself in Galatians chapter one, as he's describing his life before Christ, he says, for you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. So when this dude talks to us about not repaying evil for evil, and praying that God would bless those who persecute the church, he's speaking to us, for one, from a place of deep sadness and remorse, I would imagine, but, but also from deep conviction because this is him. He's speaking from experience here. And so we listen to what he says. Now, as we kind of break up this passage to make it kind of understandable in the next few moments that we have together, there's there's one overarching exhortation. There's nine exhortations, kind of rapid fire bullet form that we see in verses 17 through 21. But there's one overarching kind of principle exhortation here, and then he's going to give us three examples of that. He's going to describe what it looks like to obey that exhortation in three very specific ways, and then he gives us a closing reminder that's going to put a book in, not just on verses 17 through 21, but this whole passage we've been looking at, verses 9 through 21 of chapter 12. So, what is the primary exhortation, the primary teaching it is, don't repay evil for evil, but repay evil with good. It's found in verse 17. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. Now, not not all persecution rises to the level of violence, but clearly his exhortation here in verse 17 is a continuation on, at least a continuation of his Exhortation in verse 14, when he said, bless those who persecute you, bless and don't curse. In verse 14, his focus was us speaking to God on behalf of those who would persecute us. Praying to God, appealing to God that he would bless those who would persecute us, that that they would find favor in his eyes, that they might come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. So the focus there in verse 14 was us speaking to God on behalf of those who would persecute us. But here in verse 14, the focus shifts from us speaking to God on behalf of those who persecute us to now the focus being how we treat or how we pay back those who seek to do us evil. And he says, don't repay, don't pay back evil for evil. So clearly, don't retaliate. Don't retaliate. Don't, as he's he's going to say in verse 19, don't seek vengeance. Don't try to get someone back for what they do to you. And all of these, by the way, are things that are very natural to us, right? They come very natural to us. The idea of retaliation and seeking vengeance and getting someone back. Think about children. You don't have to teach children how to retaliate against their siblings when their siblings do something evil to them, right? You don't have to teach a child how to do that. They know that naturally. Why? Because it's part of our sin nature. It's part of our flesh. It's normal for our flesh to repay evil for evil. But we're we're reminded in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 through forty. In fact, if, if you've got your Bible, keep a finger here at Romans 12, but flip back to Matthew chapter 5. There's a, there's a couple of passages there. We, we read some of it this morning from Luke's gospel account, but I want you to see it from Matthew's account and how he recorded what Jesus said. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus is telling us here in the Sermon on the Mount what it, what it really means— to love your neighbor as yourself. He says beginning in verse 38, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, now pause there for a second. When Jesus says, but I say to you, he's not contradicting that. Because an eye for an eye and a tooth for tooth was part of the Old Testament law. If you go back in the Old Testament, you see that over and over again. You see it in Exodus. You see it in Leviticus. You see it in Deuteronomy. He says, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But that has to do with civil government. That's next week when we go into chapter 13. But that was part of the Old Testament law for the nation of Israel. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. So when Jesus says, but I say to you, he's not changing that law. He's not reinterpreting the law. Instead, what he's doing is he's giving us the very heart of the law, the spirit of the law. What the Pharisees were teaching is, hey, it's all about an eye for an eye. It's all about a tooth for a tooth. That was part of the law. But that was the letter of the law, not the spirit of the law. Jesus gave us the spirit of the law when he says the second greatest command, the first greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The second greatest commandment is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. He says all the law and prophets hang on those two commands. And so what, Paul, what, what what Jesus is doing in the Sermon on the Mount with all these, but I tell you's, you see it over and over again in Matthew 5 and 6, is he's, giving, he's, he's returning it to the spirit of the law. What the, what the original intent, what, what does it mean to love your neighbor as yourself in this respect? So he says, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, Turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, which was in that day and age, that was expected of you, that was considered merciful, that that, that was generous for you to agree to go with someone one mile, he says, go with them two miles. Go above and beyond that says give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard that it was said you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, now pause again. Here the Pharisees get it all mixed up because that's what they were teaching. That the law said you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. That's what they were teaching. But here they totally missed it. Yes the law said you shall love your neighbor But nowhere do the Hebrew Scriptures say you should hate your enemy. Nowhere in the Old Testament do you find that. So they're misquoting Scripture. They're misappropriating the principle of Scripture and totally getting it out of context. So he says, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good. So, both Paul and Jesus are telling us it's natural to our flesh, to our sin nature, to retaliate. It's natural to want to get somebody back for something that they do against us, to repay evil for evil. It's natural for us to hate our enemy. It's natural. It's natural to our sin nature, but it's also expected by our culture. Our culture applauds the one who stands up for himself and fights back. But our culture looks down on the one who doesn't. I wonder how much our culture would look down on Jesus if he walked the face of the earth today. So just as we said last week, Paul here is commending Uh, something that in many ways is is just a reteaching of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount that was passed along through the apostles to the Apostle Paul. He's he's here reteaching it. But what we are saying, just as we said last week, is that this is both countercultural and counterintuitive to our sin nature. It's backwards to our flesh. So we again see the connection back to Romans chapter 12 verses one and two, the the very first couple of verses in this chapter that really sets the tone for everything that comes after it. In view of the mercies of God, in, in, in light of how undeserving of God's grace we are, in light of how deserving we are of God's judgment against us because of our sin and because of our lack of righteousness, In view of the mercy of God in providing us his righteousness through Christ, so that those who come to him in faith might have his righteousness as our own, forgiven of our sins and restored to a right relationship with him. In view of those mercies, Paul said, don't be conformed to the pattern of the world that you see around you and and don't be conformed to the pattern of your own flesh. Instead, be transformed, changed from the inside out by the renewing of your mind. So here, in verse 17, the Holy Spirit gives us an exhortation. Don't repay evil for evil. And in so doing, he is bringing us to a place of conviction For the ways in which we still struggle with sin and retaliating and getting back at those who seek to do evil to us. And Paul is telling us this ought not to be the case for the follower of Jesus. Instead of repaying evil for evil, Paul goes on to say that we should do what is honorable in the sight of all. That word honorable translated in the ESV as honorable, that that word in the Greek means that which is right, that which is good. So instead of repaying evil for evil, as followers of Christ who have been transformed by the grace of God in view of those mercies, we ought to be so transformed in our heart that we do what is honorable, what is right, what is good in the sight of all. So instead of repaying evil for evil, we are to repay evil with good, which is really a restating of what Paul said back in verse 9 of this section when he started out. And he said, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. But here in verse 17, he's talking about how we respond to those who seek to do evil to us, that we're not to pay them back with further evil. Instead, we're to pay them back with good, with what is right, with what is honorable? Now, a couple of phrases here in verse seventeen that I want to draw our attention to that are going to help to shed light on what Paul is teaching us. The first is the phrase "give thought to." He says, "Give thought to what is honorable. Give thought," which means this is more than just an act of our will, where we determine by our own will that that, that we're going to not repay evil for evil, but we're going to we're going to do what is right in the sight of all. It's, it's more than an act of our will. That, that, that it requires intentional thinking and planning on our part in how and when and where and how we're going to obey this exhortation. Particularly when someone is evil to us. We ought to give thought to how we will obey this exhortation because it doesn't come naturally to us. So there must be intentional planning our, on our part and Intentional thought as to how we're going to do this. The second phrase that helps to shed some light here is the phrase, in the sight of all, at the end of that verse. He says, give thought to what is honorable in the sight of all. In the sight of all. This, this phrase doesn't modify uh, that which is good or right or, or honorable. It, it, it modifies the doing of what is good or right or honorable. In other words, what Paul does not mean by this is that in some way, those who seek to do evil to us, those whom we might call our enemy, what is right or good. He's not saying that. He's not, doing, he's not saying uh, do what is right in their eyes. It's not what he's saying. This phrase modifies the doing, not that which is good. So so Paul is using this phrase here to remind his readers and by way of consequence to remind us that there is an audience that is watching us as we act, as we speak, even when we respond to those who seek to do us evil. Paul uses this phrase a number of times in his letters and most of the time he uses this phrase when he's talking about something that that we should do in the sight of God. But a couple of times here in Romans 12 and and another time in 2 Corinthians, he uses this phrase to refer to something that we're to do or how we're to act in the sight of others, in the sight of all people, all mankind. So Paul is telling us that whether we repay evil with evil or whether we repay evil with good, there's an audience that's watching. There's an audience of people. We do so in the sight of all or in the sight of unbelievers. In other words, unbelievers are watching our every move, every action, every word, even when we respond to those who are evil. And our actions and our words and our responses in those situations they will either adorn the gospel or they will contradict the gospel. Which is it? Which is it for you? Our morality, our ethics, even our responses to the evil perpetrated against us will either reflect well on Christ or it will reflect poorly on Christ. Elsewhere in the Sermon on the Mount, if you still got your finger at Matthew 5, go a little bit earlier, right after the Beatitudes, in verses 13 through 16, Jesus addresses the importance of remembering this. Remembering that there are people around us who are watching us. There's, a, there's an audience of people in the world who are wondering what it means to follow Jesus. What does the life of someone look like who has been changed by the gospel so right after the Beatitudes, he says, beginning in verse thirteen, he says, "You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall it, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet." And then he says in verse fourteen, "You are the light of the world." He's talking to his to, to his followers, followers of Jesus, Christian. You are the light of the world. And then he gives a couple of examples of what that means. He says, a city on a hill can't be hidden. What does that mean? It means you're going to see it. A city on a hill isn't hidden. You you see it. There's an audience. Everyone sees the city on a hill. Then he says, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, so that it may give light to everyone in the house. In the same way, Jesus says, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works. So that they may see that which is honorable, that which is right, that which is good in any and all circumstances. So that they may see that and do what? And give glory to your Father who is in heaven. The Apostle Peter put it this way in 1 Peter 2 verse 12. He says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, right, good. Keep it honorable. Why? So that when they speak against you as evildoers, which is bound to happen, they may see your good deeds, your your honorable life. They they may see that you do that which is right. In all of these circumstances, even the ones in in which evil is perpetrated against you, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. What's the point here? The point here is in how we respond to those situations in which someone is seeking to do us evil, we are putting on a display of the gospel. As followers of Jesus, we're we're putting on display what it looks like to have our hearts transformed by the grace of God. We're putting on display what it means to be a a new creation in Christ. The old things that passed away, we're, we're something new. What does it look like to be new in Christ? That's what we're displaying. What does that display look like? Well, our display is either going to look just like the world because we've allowed ourselves to be pressed back into that mold, as, as Paul exhorted us against in Romans 12, 1 and 2. Don't be pressed back into the mold of the world. But if we allow that, then, then we're going to look just like the world, and that display is not going to reflect well on the gospel, and it's not going to reflect well on the risen Savior. It's either going to look like the world or our display Is going to look like it's been transformed by the grace of God and it will bring glory to God. So that's the overarching principle here. That's the overarching exhortation. Everything that comes after this in this chapter falls under that. Don't repay evil for evil, but repay evil with good. Do what is honorable and right and good in the sight of all. Now, how can we not repay evil for evil? How, how, how are we to not repay evil for evil, but instead do what is honorable in the sight of all? Paul now gives us three examples of what this looks like. Three examples of doing what is right in the sight of all instead of repaying evil for evil. And the first is to live peaceably with all. To live peaceably with all. We see that in verse 18. Paul says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably To live peaceably means to seek to be a peaceful person, to pursue peace, to to be a peacemaker as Jesus commended to us in one of the Beatitudes. He says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. So as to be a peacemaker, to live peaceably means to make peace, to cultivate peace, to keep the peace, to live in harmony. With others. This is the normal biblical word for peace. In the Greek translation of the Old Testament, this is the word that translates the Hebrew word shalom. So it has to do with living in harmony with others, it has to do with a cessation of hostilities, and it has to do with being made whole. And the question for us is do those Outside the church, see us in this way? Do those outside the church, do those outside the faith even see you this way? Do they see you as a person of peace? Or do they see you as quarrelsome? Now, Paul gives us a couple of qualifiers here in verse 18 that are important for us to note. The first is if possible. He says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. When he says, if possible, he's making a presumption that there may be situations in which it is not possible. The Bible never exhorts us and never commands us to do something which is impossible. But the reality is there may be people who simply refuse to be at peace with you. They want to be at war with you. They desire hostility with you. They don't want peace. They don't want to be made whole with you. They want to be at war. They don't want peace. And Paul says you're not held responsible for that. That would be impossible. You can't be at peace with someone who refuses to be at peace. But the second qualifier hits even closer to home when he says, as far as it depends on you. Now, this doesn't mean... As long as you've given it a try. Or as long as it's not too hard. Or as long as it's not going to cause conflict. This phrase, so far as it depends on you, is actually a very elongated English translation of a very simple Greek preposition. The preposition for in or of or on. That's what it is in the Greek. That's all it is. We translate it into so far as it depends on you. So literally what what he's saying here, the idea is that that we're to live at peace with all as long as it's possible, as long as it is in you, as long as it is of you. Live at peace. Martin Lloyd-Jones says that this means don't you be the reason why you don't live at peace with others. If somebody else refuses to live at peace with you, that's their thing. That's not your thing. But don't you be the reason, follower of Jesus, don't you be the reason why you don't live at peace with someone. Now, how can we live peaceably with with all, especially those who seek to do evil to us and want to persecute us? How can we live peaceably with them? Well, beyond the injunction that Paul has already given us here to not repay evil for evil, I think Paul's admonition to the Ephesian church in Ephesians 4.15 is a helpful encouragement for us here when he says, rather speaking the truth in love we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. Now, admittedly, the context of Ephesians 4 is how we relate to one another within the body of Christ. But certainly, the principle there holds true in how we relate to others, both inside and outside the church. We're to speak the truth, but in love. So, so this is not, Paul's not talking here about peace at all costs. He's not saying peace no matter what it costs. That no matter what someone says or believes or affirms, that we're to compromise truth just so that we'll be at peace with them. That's not what Paul is saying here at all. A very obvious, ridiculously obvious, but very timely example of this Would be the fight in our country over the unborn, which took a huge hit this past week when the state legislature in New York passed a law that a baby could be aborted up until the time that it is born. Obviously, clearly, we would never compromise truth. What is true and what is right and what is good in a situation like that, just so that we could live at peace with those who hold that kind of ridiculous mindset. It's not what he's saying. He's saying, speak the truth. We are to speak the truth as Jews, to contend for the faith once delivered to all the saints. That word contend means to fight. That we're to fight for the truth. We're to contend for that faith. What faith? The faith once for all delivered to the saints. It, It was delivered once for all. So, why do we contend for that faith? Because it is the truth and it was once for all delivered, which means it doesn't change it never changes and and so so we don't we don't compromise truth we don't compromise our faith just so that we can live at peace with people that's not what paul is saying here we're to speak the truth we're to contend for the faith but the way in which we speak the truth matters deeply we're to speak the truth in love the gospel is offensive all by itself. It doesn't need our help. The truth that we are sinners who deserve the wrath of God, that is offensive by itself. We don't, we don't need to add our offense to it by not speaking it in love. Another example would be the ongoing debate in our culture over homosexuality, which is not a debate in our culture anymore, really. It's accepted broadly in our culture. We're not to compromise truth so that, just so that we can live at peace. We're to speak the truth, but we're to speak the truth in love. That's how we do that. Speak the truth in love. This is how we live peaceably with all. Does that describe you? That's the question. As we look at that first example, does that describe you or are you characterized as one is a peacemaker who cultivates peace who speaks the truth but speaks the truth in love does that describe you second example and found in verse 19 is don't avenge yourselves Paul says in verse 19 beloved never avenge yourselves but leave it to the wrath of God for it is written vengeance is mine I will repay says the Lord now in a way this is a restatement of what he's already said don't repay evil for evil live peaceably with all but there's an element here in verse 19 that's something new about this injunction and it speaks to how we can avoid falling into the temptation of seeking revenge when someone seeks to do us harm and the answer is to leave it to the wrath of God and then he gives us the quote from Deuteronomy 32 for it is written vengeance is mine says the Lord I will repay. In other words, it's not our job to hand out vengeance. That's not our role. That's, that's, not, that's not on our to-do list with God. That's God's job. And by the way, it's not our vengeance. It's his. It's his vengeance. Because Think about it. Any offense against us is first and primarily an offense against Him. It's an offense against God. And so, if anyone deserves vengeance, it's not us, it's God. It's God's job to hand out judgment, it's God's job to hand out retribution. It's God's wrath that must be satisfied. And the wrath of God will be satisfied either by the eternal punishment of the sinner or by Jesus' substitutionary death on the cross of Calvary. The wrath of God is like a cup that must be poured out. It will be poured out. And it will either be poured out on the sinner, the unrepentant sinner, or it will be poured out on our Redeemer who died in our place. But it will be poured out So it's not our wrath, it's not our vengeance, it's not our job. It's God's wrath, God's vengeance, his job. This idea of us not deserving our own vengeance is represented beautifully in verse 19 by the very first word of that verse as he addresses his readers as beloved, beloved. And that word reminds us that we are in the beloved only by the grace of God. And because we are beloved by God, only by his sovereign grace, that we don't turn around and exact punishment and vengeance on the people around us. Reminds us of the unmerciful servant in Matthew 18 that Jesus taught, right? You remember the story Jesus tells the parable about this servant who owes his master an unpayable debt. A huge, even uncountable debt. There's no way he could ever repay it. And so he goes to his master and he and he begs forgiveness. And the master forgives the debt. He cancels the debt. But what is that merciful? that unmerciful servant do. Being unmerciful, the first thing he does is he goes out and he finds someone who owes him something far less, not insignificant, but in light of what he had been forgiven, something far, a debt far less. And that servant begs forgiveness of him and he doesn't give it. Instead, he exacts justice from that servant. He exacts punishment on that servant. And Jesus calls him wicked as a result. So we learn from this. Don't. We're not to avenge ourselves as believers in Christ. We're not to seek to get someone back, to seek vengeance. We're to leave it to God. That's his job. Third example that Paul gives here of of doing what is good, what is right, what is honorable in the sight of all, instead of repaying evil for evil. Third example is to show love to your enemy. Not just love your enemy, but show tangible, real expressions of love to your enemy. He shows this in verse 20. He says, To the contrary, which means instead of seeking to avenge yourselves, to the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. This is a direct quote from Proverbs 25. So instead of seeking vengeance from our enemies, we we are to demonstrate genuine, tangible expressions of love and care and concern and compassion on them. We're reminded here of the parable of the Good Samaritan from Luke chapter 20. Excuse me, Luke chapter 10. Jesus tells this parable in order to help give definition to what it means to love your neighbor as yourself. Because his disciples ask him, what, what is it, who's our neighbor? So he tells this parable. He tells this story about this Samaritan who was a sworn enemy of the Jews. This Samaritan who is going from Jerusalem down to Jericho, or not a Samaritan, this guy who was going from Jerusalem down to Jericho and he falls in with robbers. He gets ambushed by robbers and they beat him and they rob him and they leave him half dead in the middle of the street. And then as the story goes, Jesus says a priest, first a priest, and then a Levite pass by. They come to that place. They encounter this man beaten, lying half dead in the middle of the street, and they don't stop, right? They pass by on the other side. And then a Samaritan, here's where the Samaritan comes in. then the Samaritan comes by, and he's the sworn enemy of the Jews, which clearly this guy was a Jew going from Jerusalem to Jericho. And the Samaritan doesn't do what everyone listening to the story expected him to do. He stops. And he helps the guy. He bandages his wounds. He pours oil on him. He puts him on his own donkey. He takes him to an inn. He pays the innkeeper for his stay. And he tells him, hey, if there's any other charges that he incurs, I'll pay that as well. He shows genuine, tangible Love to this guy, to his enemy. That's what Paul is exhorting us to in verse 20. If your enemy has a need, whether it's food or thirst or whatever, a place to stay, a listening ear, a friend. If your enemy has a need, we as followers of Jesus ought to have a heart so transformed by the gospel so in view of God's mercies for us. That we would seek to be an answer to that need. That we would look for a way to meet that need. That's how you love your neighbor and that's how you love your enemy. According to Paul. And then Paul says, or at least the quote from, a, from Proverbs 25 says at the end there, For by so doing you will heap burning coals on his head. Now at first glance... That seems like a punishment, right? And, and, and it seems like Paul is actually using this. That this is a good thing for you because now that dude that tried to do evil to you, he's finally going to get his due, right? Burning coals on his head. It's going to be a bad thing for him, right? Instead, what Paul is talking about, he's not talking about that. Because that, that doesn't fit the context here at all. Paul has just exhorted us, don't seek vengeance. That would be hypocritical for, them to have to say, for him to then, then turn around and say, hey, cheer up when that happens to you because burning coals are heading to his head. It doesn't fit. So what Paul is talking about here, what, what Solomon was talking about in Proverbs 25, is that our genuine display of love by feeding our enemy when he's hungry, by giving drink to our enemy when he is thirsty... That by so loving our enemy in these ways, it will be such a weight of shame and conviction for them that, that they might turn around and repent of that. That they would come to repentance as a result of that. And if it doesn't lead them to repentance, then, then it will be that much heavier of a guilt for them to carry in hopes that they might see the error of their ways without us ever seeking our own vengeance on them. And of course, church, doesn't this remind us of our own predicament? It reminds us how heavy on us and how much shame and guilt we feel when we behold the Lamb of God, the sinless guiltless son of God nailed to a cross to rescue me, you, we who were his enemies. Would we behold the spotless, guiltless son of God nailed to a cross for us, displaying a kind of love that is unimaginable to us? It breaks our heart. And it leads us to repentance. It leads us to repentance. So show genuine, tangible love to your enemy. Are you characterized by that? And then Paul gives a closing reminder. <coughs> Excuse me. I call this a closing reminder because it is a it's a summation, really, of not just verses seventeen through to twenty one, but it's it's a. It's a summation of this whole section we've been looking at, verses 9 through 21. And the closing reminder is this, don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. From verse 21. The word overcome there means victory. It's the word for victory. In other words, when others persecute us, seek to do evil against us, perpetrate wrongdoing against us, Don't let their evil have victory over you by falling into the temptation to repay evil for evil or to retaliate or seek vengeance. Don't let let their evil have victory over you and change who you are in Christ. Instead, have victory over that evil by doing good, by living peaceably with them if possible, as long as it depends on you. Not peace at all costs, but speaking the truth in love. And by showing them tangible expressions of love, by serving them and caring for them out of a compassionate heart in hopes of seeing their evil, the evil of their actions and words leading them to repentance or at least seeking forgiveness from you. So church, let's consider the exhortations that the Holy Spirit has laid before us this morning. Let's put our lives up against that and see where the disparity might lie. Do you repay evil for evil? Or do you give thought to do what is honorable and good and right in the sight of all? Is your life characterized by living peaceably with all people? including those who are your enemies? Are you the kind of person who likes to get revenge, who likes to get back at someone? Whether it's getting back at them physically or verbally or passive-aggressively. Sarcasm, sarcasm often just masquerades as a subtle means of revenge. Do you normally... Look for, intentionally look for tangible ways of showing love to those who are even your enemies. Are you overcome by evil? Does it have more of an impact on you than you having an impact on those who seek to do the evil? We should recall here that these are descriptions of the kind of life of someone who has been transformed by the grace of God. These are ways in which we ought to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. And so if these exhortations don't describe us very well, and if God has saved us by grace through faith, if you're you're here and you haven't professed faith in Jesus Christ, please don't hear in in any of these nine exhortations or any of the 30 exhortations in verses 9 through 21 that if you try really hard that you'll make yourself acceptable to God. That's not what this says at all. But if you profess faith in Jesus Christ, if he saved you by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone, and you're a new creation, and and there are are ways in which these don't describe you, and and, and all of us, none of us match up perfectly with this. All of us find ways in which we fall very far short of these exhortations and these descriptions of a transformed life. And in those areas, in We should press in and surrender so that we would be transformed by the grace of God more. That our hearts would look more and more like Jesus. In closing over this section, I want to remind us of something that we said as we started out this, this study, this kind of section within a section in verses 9 through 21. We said that Jesus Christ crucified and resurrected is both the fuel of our transformation the one who enables our transformation, the perfect example of our transformation, and the very goal of our transformation. What does that mean? First of all, he fuels our transformation. Jesus' gracious love for us displayed on the cross of Calvary for sinners like us, for his enemies who had spurned his amazing love. That kind of gracious display of love and grace and mercy ought to fuel, ought to motivate this sort of transformation. Cause us to press in. Even if we, when we hit roadblock after roadblock after roadblock, why do I keep messing up? Why do I keep repaying evil for evil? Why do I keep desiring to retaliate? We go back to the cross, and we see the amazing love of God displayed for us and Christ crucified for us, and it fuels us to press into that transformation. Secondly, it enables it. It doesn't matter how much it fuels us. If Jesus Christ hadn't unshackled us from the shackles of sin, we would not be able to see these transformations happen in our life. But he's given us a new heart. He's taken the heart of stone. He's replaced it with the heart of flesh. He's taken that which is hard to the things of God and replaced it to that which is soft to the things of God. So now we're able. Before he he saved us by grace through faith, we could only sin. Now, now that he's given us a, a, a new heart, now that he's put a new spirit in us, now we can not sin in these ways. So he enables it but he's also our example. He's the perfect example of this transformation if we want to see an example of of what it looks like to not repay evil for evil, if we want to see an example of what it means to live peaceably with all, without compromising any truth whatsoever, if we want to see an example of what it means to display tangible expressions of love out of a heart of compassion, we need to look no further than the cross. Jesus as our perfect example of all of these things that we're commanded to do. And then lastly... Not only is Jesus crucified and resurrected the fuel of our transformation, the enabler of our transformation, the example of our transformation, but he's also the goal of it. He's the point. (laughs) He, he, He is the purpose of our transformation. The purpose of the transformation is not so that we look like good Christians. The purpose of our transformation is that we, being transformed from a sinner into a saint, from an enemy of God into a child of God, from one who begins to look counter cultural and, and, and in ways that are counterintuitive to what is natural for our sin nature. The point of all that is that God might be glorified through that, that God may be worshiped through a transformation in us that can only be the result of the living God in someone. He is the point of it. He's the purpose of it. And so if any way, in the ways in which we fall short in any of these exhortations that we've covered this morning or, or in the last few weeks in verses 9 through 21, our first response is to repent. I'm sorry, God. That is not becoming of one who claims the name of Christ as King and Savior and Redeemer. I turn away from that by faith. And then we return to the cross. We return to Calvary and we see Jesus and we see his gracious love for us and that fuels our obedience. Knowing, knowing that his work on the cross has enabled us to be able to be transformed in these ways. And that the whole point of it is the glory of his name, the worship of, of the name of the Lord our God. May may he be so worshiped through us, church, as our lives are transformed to look more like Jesus in these ways. Let's pray.